Hello, everybody. Here we are. What a great day. This is a special program. I want to encourage you right off the bat to uh, click the like button, hit that bell, hit that bell, and subscribe. And uh, we're coming your way. We have a tremendous guest with us today. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing great. This is something I wanted to do oh my gosh. ever since we started talking about doing We've this We've talked podcast. about this for over a year, Yep, having this gentleman with us today for over a it's year. It's true. And uh, Dr. Bill Westfall, uh, who works uh, in leadership around the country and uh, is one of the foremost and uh, great minds of, I call him a leadership guru. I mean, he's just amazing. And uh, no embellishment there whatsoever. None. And we're so glad to have you with us today. Well, I'm privileged and honored to be <clears throat> here. You're a big reason why we're here. That is exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the leadership training that yep. this man has provided really has played a significant role in oh, man. Uh, bringing some of these concepts and ideas together um, yep. for us to be able to provide some resources for our officers That's and right. their families. So thank you for that. He really, he's not only helped me, he's helped my staff. I mean, right. all over. I mean, it's just been tremendous. He comes every year, teaches a youth leadership academy and helps us with that just been a great giver into our lives and we're very grateful thank you sir well those feelings are very mutual for both of you as well i hope you know that yeah thanks for taking the time to come and be with us today and out of your very busy schedule and we're very grateful that you're here and i have to tell you this i'm not a doctor there so you know that though That's oh i'm sorry you, oh. That you well i was that. Let's bestow it upon him today. Yeah. Honorary doctorate. Honorary doctorate. I don't no want to doubt take about it. Well, Doc I heard, Westfall. I, I heard you were a barbecue doctor, and I heard you had a doctorate in barbecue. <laughs> that he does. That, that title I'll accept. That, that title you're accepting. <laughs> my, my, great, my great last chapter of my life, I hope, is as a pit master. <laughs> One of the barbecue <laughs> places in Indiana. This guy. I believe that. Lute, I believe that. This guy <laughs> has eaten so much barbecue. They... It, he is already well smoked. Let me tell you right now. It's he like is. that old TV show Cheers when you walk into a barbecue place with Bill. They all say, Bill, Bill you're back. Yeah, that's right. All right. So here we have to ask you the, the, the big question. Number one, what is your favorite oh, meat man. to be barbecued? Do you prefer like brisket or pork or chicken? or? Uh, I have to say two, and I'd probably go with chicken first. Oh, really? Okay. Followed by ribs. Oh, there you ribs. go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Big ribs or the little spare ribs? Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so when, you, when you get them, do you get a half rack or do you get the full rack? I, I'm not going to admit that. It's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the first time I went to, in fact, to the city barbecue, when they opened up on the north side of town, yeah. mm -hmm. I got a whole rack and granddaughter. I have one granddaughter. Can't watch me eat him. <laughs> Puts up the house. It's not pretty. <laughs> Turn away. Look away. Smear it all over. Now, it's now not, I, then I would have to say you probably do not use like a fork and a knife. Thank you. It's fingers and grit. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way it's meant to be. That's right. Grit That's and right. growl. That's why he gave you a bone in there, man. <laughs> Suck the bone right off it. Now, he's also another connoisseur, and he's well known for it. Oh, is that right? And that is the Cracker Barrel. That is. Now, this man travels all over the country, and I would yeah. venture to say you've come close to hitting just about all of them, haven't There's you? There's 650 of them, just so you know that. I've probably <laughs> eaten at 450 of them. You've so, eaten at 450? I'm, I'm across the country. Holy That's not exaggerated. Border to border, coast to Think coast. Think about that. Well, first of all, I'm he with you. He ought to be a spokesperson. <clears throat> he should be. Yeah. <laughs> Number one, I'm with you on that because uh, 
I don't think you can get a better pancake than Cracker oh, Barrel agreed. pancakes. Number two, I don't think you can get better syrup than that hot, real maple syrup to agreed. pour on it. And number three, they're about the only joint anymore that serves real country ham for breakfast. Agreed. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm in your corner on that one right off the bat. He ought to at least get an <clears throat> honorary four-star apron from the Cracker yeah. Barrel with his name on it and everything it's, else. It's I a mean, fascinating should. corporation. This That's guy has is. earned it. So. so, back to barbecue, what's your favorite sauce? Sweet, like a Carolina mustard base, or like a Memphis, Kansas City or like a Texas dry rub. I like a man that understands the regional value of barbecue. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I am hands down always a sweet, probably brown sugar, maybe some mustard once in a while, but <clears throat> a sweet versus a vinegar-based. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, that, that brown sugar also helps in putting a good bark oh. on a brisket. Yeah. I, did, I did a brisket for um, Memorial Day. I didn't get that squishy, you know, the juice pouring out. It was very, very tender. But I did use some brown sugar and some uh, not not apple juice, but mm. apple juice concentrate mm -hmm. to put that hard, nice bark on that. And, of course, the boys, you know, they're men, but it was gone, gone, gone. It's like an old girlfriend, just gone. <laughs> <laughs> they chewed, they lit into that. They lit into that with knife and fork, and it was just gone. Well, and I believe him on the uh, sweet part because he's also known for his sweet iced oh. tea. He is. Uh, oh, are you a sweet iced tea guy? I am. I am a. Well, I won't say connoisseur, but I can tell you where the best <laughs> iced tea. Is. In fact, when McDonald's finally had a sweet tea, they, they do remember that. Yeah. And overnight, there's no telling what happened to their volume. It would be my guess. You. Yeah. Had to have yeah. increased because you know if you went up north in the summertime, you couldn't. Well, excuse me, wintertime. And when I would travel, That's right. they'd get you tea, and then they'd, they'd say, say to you, "I'd say sweet tea," and then, "Well, we have iced tea." I mean, you'd be lucky to sugar. find it. And then they hand you a packet of sugar. And who know. can dissolve sugar in cold iced tea? You feel it's for ridiculous. them, don't you? That they just don't understand. I'm from North Carolina <laughs> and from the South, and let me tell you, we know about sweet tea. And you got to have at least two cups for every two quarts of tea. Um, and I have to tell you this story too. I moved to Florida. That's where I got experience with some sweet tea and. Some folks came over. We moved into a neighborhood, and they came over to visit. And, and it was August, and I said, "Can I get you something to drink?" And they said, "Well, sure. We'd love some tea." Well, I'm the pure Yankee at that point in time, and so I went out and boiled them up some hot tea in August and gave it to them. They looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We know you're from the north. Yeah. You didn't learn that down here from any of our mamas. That's now Bill awesome. talks about uh, his his oh, his travels. I mean. Again, I don't want that to get lost on people. Probably right. 450 out of 650 Cracker Barrels around the country. That's right. But that's from all of his traveling with work, uh, with his uh, profession now, and all the law enforcement leadership training that he does. Now, what's interesting is for all the travel that he does, he drives that. He doesn't really fly that. Thank you. How many miles do you think you've driven in your training career? On which van? Well, if you had to add them all up, <laughs> okay. what would you say? First one, I bought a used Aerostar, and I used to drive down the road with the screen on the left arm, and, and that was about it. I got that. It was a used van, and I got that one to 450,000 miles. Holy shit. I sold that one to the mechanic that worked on it. Last time I knew it was still running. <laughs> God. 
and I had five years to think about well, what would we design. <laughs> I finally got myself a full-size van. I put 650,000 miles on that one, sold it to the mechanic that worked on it, and, um, and then somebody stole it. Mm. Oh, no. yeah, I mean, it was still in good shape. Still going. It was just older, and I needed to replace it. And this one's got 380,000 miles on it. I'll be buried in this one. Wow. <laughs> well, I've ridden in your van, and let me tell you, the reason his mechanics buy his vans is because it's practically brand new still. Yeah. I, so. I mean, yeah, only yeah. the odometer shows the mileage because the interior and everywhere else is spotless. Now, you think about perfectly that. Perfectly clean. <clears throat> Whatever that total was, you're probably pushing two million miles. A little over a million. Okay, yeah. so with that, that's a whole lot of coppers that you've been out there training, right? So there's going to be officers that watch this from all over the country that know Bill and know what he's about and know of his teaching. <clears throat> the other thing he's known for is the high quality presentations that's that right. he provides. High quality equipment, sound, video, audio, all those things. What people don't see is the behind the scenes that this man still loads and unloads that His often by yeah. him by himself in that van yeah. and then gets in there and drives a thousand miles to get to yeah. the next place. It's really incredible. Yeah. A real testament. And, but when he comes here, he does not. He does not do we it take by himself. Care of him and right we now. honor uh, his life and all that he does, we make sure that he is well taken care of. I trust he feels that way when he comes here. Because uh, we're not going to have him load and unload by himself when he's here. We but, never expect that, but we always appreciate it. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your uh, training company and, and what kind of training you provide so folks know if they don't know of you. Sure. Well, actually, as a partnership, my partner, whose business partner has been a great friend, boss, uh, for 40 years now. His name is Pat Gallagher. He's really, he's really the author of of liability management for law enforcement within this country. Ridley written the book. Wow. And uh, I met Pat as a, he was my boss when I worked in Florida with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And um, we went to work together 35, 35 years ago, I believe. Wow. And, uh, but, but I think what I brought to the table, his interest was obviously in liability management, which is his whole <clears throat> uh, approach is if you're well supervised, well led and well managed, you reduce liability. So yeah. no secret there. But what I think I brought to the table then was this interest and this passion for to understand. See, what fascinates me is how, and you've seen this before with either a team or maybe in work, but you'll have a team that's a losing team and they get a new coach. Mm. And then that coach comes in. He doesn't bring the first assistant coach with him. He doesn't have any new players. Right. But he takes the same people in the same location with the same game, and suddenly they start to win. Isn't that amazing? And so that's what's always fascinating because I actually saw that when I was in the service. That's, that was I was sitting on a hill in Vietnam with a, a company that was, um, and I didn't expect this. I had joined them as a replacement, and, and they had been together for two years training. They had been in country for six or seven months. They'd been bloodied there. So I was expecting this band of brothers, and I got a band of goofballs. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, and I, I tried to figure that's out what the, and I'm only 21, 22 years of age. Right. Well, in time, in about two weeks, we figured out it was this captain that was running this company because mm. we were pretty much isolated. And he, was a, he wasn't evil, but he was a micromanaging man that had rules, wouldn't let us uh, chamber rounds while on patrol because he was afraid, as he said, that we would shoot the wrong people. And I get that. That's this was in a war. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and, and very should, heated combat. Well, I, should not, I won't say heated, but I would say this. It was a very active peninsula. It was one of the first major battles of that war was fought there in uh, wow. just south of Chulai. Um, we lost about 75 or 80 Marines in that battle, and I wasn't there at the time, but I joined this company, which had been there. Right. And um, so I was expecting this band of brothers. 
but he he wouldn't he wouldn't listen. He wanted, he would be back in the CP and uh, the command post, and uh, we'd have to give him we'd have to give him. He said, "Take cover, get concealment, and but don't turn fire until we chatted with him." Well, sometimes we couldn't even talk with the man, and, and we found a lot of ways around that, of course. Holy smoly! And then the other thing was is that everybody there had these body sores that you're going to get when you get there. They just open up, and they're they don't they're not life threatening, but they make your life miserable. And we couldn't get rid of them. Navy corpsmen, I always kind of crack up at this, but there are, are people, obviously, and they came up with this concoction of wintergreen and iodine that they would mix <laughs> together and throw on an open sword. It's and I always say to good. you, yeah, next time that you have an open sword, just, just pitch some of yeah. that in there. And it Woo, hurt. But I it bet it stung. In, in ways I can't even <coughs> tell you. Oh, yeah, buddy. But, you know, typical grunts, we figured it out. Yeah. Uh, get, some, get some fresh air and sunshine to these sores, and they start to cure they up a little bit. Out. There was actually a river that ran adjacent to that peninsula, the Song Trabong River. If you could get down that briny water, it'd start to cure up too. Okay. But if he caught you down there, or caught you without uniform, not full uniform, and we asked him one time why he was so adamant about that. You know, he told us he was afraid that somebody would fly over and see us out of uniform. Wow. And oh, we're going, because see, Viet Cong didn't have air. We had air. Well, he was afraid some colonel would fly over and see him and maybe That's gig right. his people because they're not properly the court. See? And gig him. So mm -hmm. there wasn't a thing we could do. He was the captain of the hill. But we, we got his rotation date. Mercy. If mercy. you'll allow me. We got a little treat there every day. Got two Cokes or a Coke and a beer a day. Didn't get any heavy ice, but you could bury it in the sand, cool it down. So that was our, then our sea rations at night. And so uh, when he left, uh, we saved up our beer and Coke for almost a month. And when he left, <laughs> Had a we rocked that peninsula like there hasn't been rocked probably before. <laughs> since. Somebody said this, and that's true. You'll always make your people happy. When you come in, and or when you, you go leave. out, and, yeah, and that's right. Now, what happened though, within two, three days, was this huge apprehension, because well, have you heard? I'm sure you have. Well, the devil I got may not be as bad as the one I'm about to get, probably. Mm -hmm. And it just a pall set over that country. Mm. And then this, this was a man I never forgot. I don't even remember the gentleman's name that was there before, but Don Brooks was his name. Dee mm. Brooks, we called him. And uh, he gets off a helicopter. He's a captain. And there's 250 of us gathered together to greet him on this hill. This is the replacement. This is the replacement. And this helicopter, remember, I can see this like yesterday. Here we are sitting there so apprehensive and fearful about this man because we at least knew what the other guy was about. And the first thing he said to us, now put yourself there as best you can, okay, and think about this. He just looked out among us and he said, man, he says, let's get those utility jackets off and let's get some fresh air and sunshine to those open sores. Hmm. So what does he do with one sentence? One sentence. And it took me years to find him, Wow, 40 years. And uh, I, the first question I posed to him, because I didn't know, and he told me, he says, I knew what my predecessor was like. He never talked ill of the man, never spoke ill of him, wouldn't allow us to do it either. But he said, I had to pick out something that I knew would let you know I was gonna be a different kind of a leader. Hmm. But what I watched there within two weeks is that group went from 10 miles per hour performance to about 90. And we hadn't added the first wow. thing. It's the same mission with the same weapon, with the same, everything's exactly the same. NCOs were the same, lieutenants were the same. The only thing that was changed was the leadership. Was the leadership. And so I the differentiator, it was the leadership. Everything rises and falls. On leadership. On leadership. Yes, wow. It's that simple and that complex. <coughs> All yes, it is. So I remember looking around and thinking to myself at, at that young age, I, I didn't miss that part. And I wanted to know how he did that. I want to know how he was able to do that, what we see these coaches do the same thing. Because I'll tell you something. See, we got infiltrated there about a week after he got there, and we actually had some people up in our wire. And I, I give him credit for that. I wouldn't know that I would have done that. 
and we had kind of an all-night shindig there. And I, could, I will tell you, that company performed superbly, as you would hope. We had some wounded, uh, one pretty severely, the rest of them pretty much shrapnel wounds, but uh, the one that was wounded pretty severely would normally go back mainside, where you'd get what we call three hots on a cot, and, mm -hmm. and you get air conditioning and probably a cold beer and, and civilization to some degree. Right. And he wouldn't leave. He, he insisted on staying in that company with our corpsman in a tent that was 105 degrees with about 105% wow. humidity, risking probably infection. Yeah. And what I realized there is because, what, they had become the Band of Brothers. That's right. Oh, wow. It. And they were so concerned that if they went back mainside, because we've seen this happen, they'd get picked off in someone somewhere else. So yeah. now they're, gonna, they're not going to leave the they Brothers. They didn't want to leave. Mm -hmm. So the no. first leader, everybody wanted to leave. The second leader comes, makes one simple statement, and now everybody wants to stay. And the only difference are is the leadership, is the and leadership. like we always talk yeah. about, actions over words. That's right. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, Marine, Vietnam yes. War yeah. veteran, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your history. So, um, obviously, you were younger when you were in Vietnam, and then mm -hmm. what did you go on to do? Well, I should probably also tell you this, though, that I was at a... I went in the Marine Corps and needed to. <laughs> Some people don't need to, <laughs> but I needed to. And uh, I was very fortunate because I got exposed there to both, both excellent leadership and very poor leadership. And one of the things I learned from that is that you have to really experience both. One will mentor, encourage, and promote, and do those things. But the other one gives you a lesson you don't get any other way. And that lesson is a commitment I will never do to my people what was done to me. There you go. And wow. you don't get that any other mm -hmm. way. And I've watched people that will will fishtail through an organization never having those kind of experiences. Yeah, they and, intentionally avoid it. And they cannot relate to the person that goes point. through those That's things. That's very good. Yeah. That's a very good yeah. thought. So I was fortunate that four years, still kind of a confused young man, if you will, uh, went up to Alaska. I grew up in the East Coast in Washington, D.C., in Indianapolis. And um, my father and mother divorced when I was about six. And I had not spent much time with my father, so he was in Alaska. He had actually homesteaded up there. So I wanted to go up and spend some time with him and see what he was like. And he and I were really, um, we, we were different people. But the, the country, oh, my heart, oh, yeah. I mm -hmm. fell in love with it. Can you imagine this kid from the cornfields of Indiana and the swamps of Washington, D.C., going to those two gash mountains? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but then I also was very fortunate. Within a year and a half there, I joined the Alaska State Troopers. And I cannot, oh, wow. cannot say enough about that foundation. Because uh, you imagine a city kid, in, of course, in that country. But I was very, I, two things happened to me. One, when I was getting ready to take that job, I was flying back home to see my mom. And I had an uncle here in Indianapolis that I really loved. He was a judge. Mm -hmm. uh, he grew up literally in a dirt floor shack in southern Indiana. Is that right? I can take you to the, it still stands to this wow. day. He's buried right across the road. Hmm. And I, I said, uh, to him, I, I called him up because I was supposed to visit and couldn't. I, I said, Uncle Andy, I said, uh, before I go, when I go back to Alaska, I'm going to start a job there as a state trooper. And he said this to me. He said, well, good for you, young man. He said, you know, if you do that job properly, and that was the emphasis, he says, there's nothing more noble you'll do with your life than that. Listen to that. Nothing more noble. Now, I hadn't thought about nobility because I'm 23, four years of age, right. but I'm thinking about better pay and benefits and spirit of right. adventure. But then I went to an organization that walked that talk. And I can tell you the supervisors I had, Don Lawrence and Jim Baden and Walt Gilmore and even troopers. Yeah. Uh, Michael Murphy's example, who's yeah. a young troop, uh, that set a tone for me as a young man, that showed me what nobility looked like and how it was practiced in a profession that is supposed to be on a foundation of nobility and honor. You know what strikes me there is yeah. the, what you've said here, which is the really poor leadership that you needed to experience so you know, Absolutely. know the difference. 
you can't even remember their name. But I listen to you cite all these names. Of one right after another. People that just right. left a mark on your life. and You want to hear a really interesting story? I do. Michael Murphy was a trooper. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, He probably had the greatest impression on me. All right, Those were supervisors. Let me tell you about Michael Murphy. He's an Irish kid, grows up in Ireland, goes into the Navy. Gets I didn't know they had a Navy. Gets out of the Navy, <laughs> becomes a police officer. He's a police officer in Ireland for three or four years. And then he, he goes to with a constabulary uh, in Singapore. And if, if you're not aware of that, but there was that, that's one of the two successful guerrilla wars that's been won. Yeah. And he was a lieutenant when he left there. He came back to Ireland, was a police officer. I understand with the London Met for a while. Wow. Then he immigrates to this country. And he ended up in Seward, Alaska, which is a small fishing town south of Anchorage, about 123 miles, which I remember every inch of. And, uh, <laughs> and he was two troops before me. And I didn't know I didn't know much about Michael Murphy when I first got there. About what year would this be? This is 1968, mm. 69, okay. 70, long in there. But let me tell you why he was. He was. A, they had an earthquake there in 64, I believe, the second biggest earthquake in the Western Hemisphere. And Michael Murphy was in Anchorage, and they told him get back to your city. And he got 23 miles outside of Seward, and the the road was broken up. So most of us would have turned around and gone back to Anchorage and said, couldn't get there. And Michael Murphy got into the trunk of his car and got his snow skis, or excuse me, his snowshoes out and a backpack and went 23 miles to get to a city, which made the congressional record Holy that day. Smoly. Yeah. Wow. Now, I have to tell you, I hadn't been made there. Made the congressional record. Yes. Yeah. Huh. Um, heroic, huge. So I'm, I've, this, is a, this is a fishing logging town, and I stopped this old logger right after I got there, and I he ripped these tickets out of my hand, and he said, I'll take a ticket from Murphy, but I ain't sure I won't take a ticket from you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he told me this story. He says, you know, his son, Michael Murphy's son, was speeding through town one day, and Murphy stopped his own kid and gave him a ticket. Then he took him down and made him pay it, and then he made him work it off at the house. So what he was telling me is Michael Murphy is a fair man. That's but right. He, and I could go on and on. Hmm. Yeah. But I have to tell you one more. I'm doing a burglary about two weeks later in Hope, which is right on the coast, and they burgled this home, and, and the, uh, the man that owned the home was just sitting there having his breakfast in front of I see this today. He's sitting in front of a wood stove having his breakfast. His wife is doing all the talking because he's so angry somebody broke into his home. Now, his back porch is cantilevered over an 800-foot gorge. I can't wait to get out of the house because I hate heights. Holy okay? smoly. So I'm packing up my stuff to leave, and I will never forget this. As I'm walking out, he finally said something to me. He just put it in his face and says, you know, you seem like a nice young man. And then he kind of snickered and said, but you're certainly no Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you what an impression, impression he wow. had on me, that Murphy had on me. I wasn't insulted by that. Yeah. But I was, I was motivated by that. And I That's told him awesome. this. I said, you're right, I'm not. How could I be? But I hope someday I'm a Murphy. I hope someday I'm a man that people talk about. Yeah. Like to talk about Murphy to this day. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. here's the whole point of this. I never met him wow you never met trooper murphy really i never met him think about that holy smoly now think and let me let me that's that amazing bit. well let me let me tell you about another piece of this one reason i never met him he's the only man in the history of alaska state troopers that was ever given a sabbatical i wanted a sabbatical to go back to school they wouldn't give it to me but they gave it to murphy gave him a year then they gave him a second year in fact, he was supposed to come back in May of 18, or 1968, and this was uh, about June. Michael Murphy, if you remember his experience in Singapore, had volunteered to go to Vietnam wow. as an advisor. And he'd gotten one tour, and he requested, and he got a second tour. 
and was supposed to come back, I think, that June. And in um, May of that year, he was coming back off an all-night patrol that was ambushed, and Michael Murphy lost his life for his adopted country and is still buried right there. In fact, he's buried right is there. Is that in Seward. right? Mm-hmm. What a testimony. What a testimony. You know, it brings up a, a scripture that I had in my heart today out of Proverbs. And, um, and this scripture, because this is what we're battling today in America, and I think probably in some ways around the world. This scripture says, Remove not the ancient landmarks uh, which your fathers have set. Mm. So if you take the story you just told us, and you take Trooper Murphy, who really is like a father in law enforcement, looked at, honored, he set the mark for nobility. Even the civilians, even if he was disciplining them or writing them a ticket or dealing with them, <laughs> accepted what he had to say or, or honored him. You know, it's really a high honor for them to even say to you, well, you're no Murphy. I agree. I mean, that's still a, that's a high honor. You're a great young man, but you're no, I mean. And then you think about the benchmarks that he set that you wanted to achieve. Never having met him, you and I have never met Moses or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the great men that's in this book. Uh, but they set benchmarks uh we've met jesus spiritually but we've never met him personally yet we will one day he set benchmarks for us to walk nobly before god to walk properly before god to have you wanted to be the best trooper you could be because of the stories and the things that you knew about the character of michael murphy and Today, what I'm seeing is just like you were talking about, some of the younger generation really are are after more the money, the prestige of a career, and and the things that they want to do or change or accomplish, that even in these very important areas of life, they're wanting to shift those landmarks. They're wanting to push those aside and make life really about things that life's really not about. That's so nicely put. But if you go back to the fathers and the marks that they laid and you start from there, you really get a leg up because Trooper Murphy went through some stuff so that you didn't have to. Mm -hmm. So you could learn from his experience. Your first captain, as you so well articulated your stories, he set some benchmarks you didn't want to become a part of. Your second captain came in and set some benchmarks that you said, now that's a guy I want to follow. There there are sergeants and lieutenants and captains and commanders all over this nation in law enforcement that these young troopers or young sar- uh, um, um, deputies and, and, and young police officers are looking towards. They've set some benchmarks. Um. Can you speak to, and and Rick, you can too, because you've been in law enforcement for so many years, speak to the the heart of an officer who should be looking more towards these older 
men that they kind of want to cast aside or put their stuff away from them that really, and, and even society today, tearing down monuments, tearing down uh, historical things, and you know, I know you're a great history buff too, uh, tearing down uh, things that really do matter, even if they're not great positive things. As you said, they still remind us where not to go. That's right. They're benchmarks for They're the benchmarks good for the, the good bad. and the bad. Right. And just um, as as one of the fathers of leadership in this aspect and and uh, one of the older statesmen in law enforcement now uh, and with the history that you have, uh, we should be gleaning. And these young people should be gleaning from you, not treating you like, eh, I don't know if I really want to hear what this guy has to say or not. Am I making sense? Yes, absolutely. And that's what this scripture is really saying. You hurt your life when you do that. You know, I'd say a, a couple of things is that as one ages, because the question I keep posing to myself is I, I, I people say, well, why don't you retire? Because I'm beyond most retirement ages. Well, I think one thing, uh, my life has not worked out in one chapter the way I thought it would when I was a young man. But I've had, with age, able to reflect back and see what I see now is providence. And I understand mm-hmm. that these things were being guided that I had, uh, not not my, but, and, and some things I didn't want to do, and I resented them, and I rejected them. Because you then, just didn't stay in Alaska as a trooper. No, I went back to school with the hope of going back up there, because I loved it. I loved the work, and I loved the people. And then the pipeline hit, and some other things became very complex for my family. So I stayed in, stayed in law enforcement. I couldn't go back up there. And if I, I should drop this in, and money has never driven me, but I was making $9,000 a year in Florida in 1975, and my buddies were in Alaska when the pipeline hit. We were making over $100,000 a year. Holy <laughs> What? That's oh I can I can nine mm-hmm. not ninety no nine with it, I could give you story after story but uh, so these you, are my my generation and with their overtime we're making a hundred hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year so you oh, went to Florida God. after Alaska yes those yes. are two yeah. opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> that's a little different it was because of the schooling and mm-hmm. the, and the college that drove drove me there um, I I think what I'd I'd want to say that when you talk about the the the, the markers and the history. I, I'm, the Civil War has always drawn me in because it's heartbreaking. If you love this country and you yeah. love the people and you love the foundations of this country, when you realize what, what it took to find this, you say, if you can't see providence in that. <laughs> so, and yet it tore this country apart. And so when you look, but, but this is actually John Campbell's work, and he says this. He, he was talking to a Vietnam veteran who was feeling, uh, rem, some, I won't say remorse, but... Uh, he, he tried to get some therapy in California, and they didn't understand the things he was going through. And they basically threw him in a hallway. And uh, but he happened to run across Campbell, who he knew, and he's a he's a philosopher a bit. He wrote a book called The Power of Myth, and and he explained to him because he had taken a hill, and this is where he wanted a Navy Cross, you know, or was awarded a Navy Cross from this wow. effort. But he said this young lad popped out of this spider trap, and he said I looked him in the eye, and I knew I was going to die or he was going to die, so he took him out. And then they later searching him, they realized that he was a father and he was a son and he was a yeah. husband mm-hmm. and, and he reflected on that. So he was, he was trying to deal with that. The humanity. So Campbell, he told this to Campbell and Campbell said to him, and I thought this, he says, here's what you have to understand about our civil war as well too. Can't you see that the other man's fate placed him on a field of opposites? It's just fate, Pettisavar. You here and he's there. Now, Here's the question, and he asked him this question. He says, 
what was the way that you conducted yourself? He said, did you intend right? And he said, I teared up. I couldn't answer the man. Wow. He said, I just noveled, nodded my head, because my generation did. See, the yeah. people forget this, but mm. two-thirds of the country in the South wanted to live free. And if you ask, I understand, I've seen data that says 70% of my generation would go back there and fight that war again, even though we know the outcome of it, because we saw people face-to-face -face living out in those villages that wanted to live free. And if you don't think the aftermath of them not living free didn't cost them something, you're talking about Vietnam. I'm talking about Vietnam and the people that were in so Vietnam. So say that again. Yeah. You said 70% of your well, generation. I want to be generation. careful with that. I should have researched that before I made that statement. But I, the vast majority. A I'd significant say that, number. Oh, yes. Thank you. Would yeah. go back oh, and yeah. fight that again. Yeah, I fight would. Vietnam again. I would because of the people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and see, we, some of those people came here, and I've seen many of them that have had very prosperous oh, yeah. lives. So I, by all means. so And that, would have had they been free there, Thank too. you. Yeah. Fighting for freedom. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> So when he said that, he just nodded his head. And watch what Campbell does, because this was really helpful for me, because I've never felt guilt. But I was not taught, I was taught well to fight in a war by the Marine Corps. But nobody told me how to deal with the rejection when mm. I came home. Yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah, see, I had an uncle that fought at Iwo, and a cousin that was in Chosen in Korea. And, and I, I, they were neither really bitter, and in fact, it was the proudest chapters of their life, probably. Yeah. So I was confused when I came home, and I was never spit on that some people are and have been, but I've had people walk away from me. I've had people stop conversations. I had people at work that wouldn't talk with me because I had fought really? there. Really? And oh I'm my. confused by that at 23 years of age, you see? I always so, thought it was such an honorable, always looked at men that came back from Vietnam as just such honorable men that would go literally lay their lives down, again, for people they don't even know for the cause of them being set free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what you're speaking to is the disillusionment mm -hmm. that you faced when you came back uh, because you know what the context was and what the purpose was for exactly. you. Plus, I knew the people. And you yeah. knew the people, the humanity the people. behind yes. it. Yeah, the people And really, I hear you talking about the sanctity of life even in war. Uh, it's the lives yeah. that you're protecting and upholding as well, right? So how could our law enforcement officers not relate to that? Uh, that's for exactly. In, in, in this age today especially. Yeah. Wow. So when he asked the question, did you attend right now to him, watch what Campbell does, and this is brilliant. He waves his hand. He says, absolution. Mm. What was the way that you fought wow. in that war? Absolution. So now go back to our civil war. This is what's heartbreaking. Uh, see, I can find bigots and racists in blue uniforms and in gray uniforms. Absolutely. But if we look deeply, you'll find also men. See, I always thought if I lived in the South in that era, I hope I would detest it, hate it even, slavery. But at the same time, at the same time, I would hope also that I would want to live free, okay, and independently and be able to make my own decisions. Uh, so I think I would have been torn in the South because I know what my loyalty probably would have been to my state more in that era than to my nation, unless I'd really understood yeah. that. So the context is what we talk about all the time. Context before content. content yeah. Thank right? you. And so, and I see the application that you're making as well, which is how that can apply to your experiences in war and combat, but also how it applies to our officers who are saying, Hey, and I think this t just kind of taps into what we talk about a lot which is the, the heart, the motivation behind the officers. Most people wouldn't do this job for a million dollars. Officers do it for a whole lot less. I just talked to a group last night of uh, officers that were graduating from an academy, and I spoke to the family members, and I said, 
many of you, when you look at your family member, you can't understand at all. Right. Why would they even want to do this, especially in this day and age? And the fact that there's just this such a strong call on a person's life, on their heart, on their spirit, mm-hmm. to still go and do this, to still take that hill, even when it doesn't seem like anybody else cares, but you do, the power that's in that. And I think that's why it's so relatable when you speak to folks today about leadership and speak of your experiences, but that of others as well. Well, I don't, in context of what he was saying, I don't think our nation understood. I don't, I think politicians in that day made it so muddy during Vietnam that the nation didn't, the young people didn't really understand why we were there. Well, I would contend, I think for the most part, that still exists today. I do too. Do you not think so? I mean... Obviously, a lot has happened. You always see a distinct move in people's hearts when they stand in front of that Vietnam Wall in yeah. Washington, D.C. But still, even with the magnitude of the names and the wall and all the thoughts associated with that, it still has this negative connotation to it that has seemed to permeate throughout history, even to generations that were not even alive sure. then. Um, and, and, and I think that's the context, too, of, of Christ. Because once a person understands why Jesus died for us, why he was willing to go to the cross, why he was willing to go to Vietnam and fight in a war for people that he didn't even know, had never met, even look if at he their didn't faces. get a choice, even if you didn't <laughs> even get, if to, you got drafted, right, you might have right? got drafted, but still, the the context of uh, that self-sacrificing heart that's driven deep within a police officer, deep within a a, a serviceman, deep within a person who feels such an immense call of duty on their life to make sure that what is wrong is made right. That really is the call of God. That really truly is in the profession, whether you're a pastor or a police officer. Notice those two things start with a P. Or, (laughs) (laughs) Or... or on a pea boat or whatever. But I mean, that that call to duty, that God call, um, if we start making that uh, humanistic thought, and it's no longer about the heart, it's just a career choice, it's just a, something I always thought I'd like to do. It's If you take that and you take that away from the one who really calls you, and start setting the benchmark for you as a young person, puts in these monuments through humans way back when, and you can march it down historically and see where your heart follows after the same thing their heart did. It always leads you back to Jesus. It always leads you back to the Father. And then you and I are really truly motivated by the Holy Spirit. Service above self. It's a sacrificial service. It's a sacrificial. And and just so you know, Jesus wasn't, the Bible's very clear, he wasn't just crucified 2,000 years ago. God himself says he was crucified from the foundations of the earth. Mm-hmm. He already had the plan. He already foreknew this thing was not going to go well, and he had a plan to redeem man. Just like you get a plan before you go into a house the SWAT team has a plan before they go into a house. There's a plan. And if you shift those markers or somebody decides to shift them on the fly, uh, things can go bad really quick, really bad. 
Well, that's what Bill talked about, right? Yeah. Freeing people from bondage. That's Whether right. it be spiritual bondage, it. physical bondage, it's this, this sense of freedom, right? And you could see the passion in his face when he said it. And where the Still spirit, in his eyes, great passion for that freedom. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, there is freedom. Liberty. There is liberty. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. You've got this extensive law enforcement career and background. Then it moves into 35-plus years of law enforcement training, leadership training. You've had a whole Excuse life me. engaged with military, veterans, officers from all over the country. This is a podcast that's a biblical perspective on policing. What role does faith play in all that for you? You know, I gave you some thought to that before I came here today, and I was looking for commonalities because I had this discussion earlier in the week. And I was a man that did not grow up with a father. Um, my mom and dad divorced when I was six, in about 1950, in fact. So if you do, if you look at that, because see, people didn't divorce in 1950. So first mm. thing it is, I looked at my mother, and knowing my father as I do now, I would have thanked her for divorcing him. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't grow up with that father. Mm. Wow. But I still grew up fatherless. Yep. And then I've watched young men that had they had two things in their family. They had a strong father, and they had a strong father in faith. Not perfect, but in faith. Hmm. And when I would meet them at the same age, I would be maybe in my early 20s, and I'd looked where they were, and these were men that had matured well beyond the 20s. So the commonality that I saw there um, of having a strong male role model in a family who was also faith-based uh, huge advantages, huge advantages. Now, I in time learned the lessons that they had learned when they were young, but I had to learn them independent. Yeah, had to and without out. having a family around you that could be very supportive as you're going through those difficulties, basically. And that's a whole different scheme of things. So if you were to ask me uh, for commonalities, that's the first one that really comes home is having faith in home. Because I've, I've been a believer. I had a grandmother that I used to I laugh about. She lived in almost 100. She was from wow. a small town in Kentucky. And uh, she was a teacher, among other things. But she was very faith-based. And, and so I grew up in that home, luckily, until I was a certain age. Uh, my grandfather died when I was about eight, a good man, but didn't have that much influence by that time because I'd only been with him a couple of years. But yeah. anyway, I lived here until about teen years. And my grandmother's the one that would drop kick you through the goalpost of life. <laughs> so... We, I at least had some structure there, but I never had it. My mom used to tell me this. She says, there's only things, some things I can do as a mother that I can't right. do. And she would try and give me books maybe to read or whatever, you know. So that that's, that's a monstrous piece there. That's so amazing. So there was a common nominator. So God I for grandmas. Six of us that grew up in the service uh, that came, met in boot camp. Three of us became police officers, and we're still friends to today. Exactly. Right. Yep. So amazing. I look at those men and what the homes that they came out of. And where there was a father with faith, and some of us had it, but some of us didn't. They're all good men, you know. Yeah. But there's a whole different depth to the men that had that. Wow. Yeah. That's a great. That's uh, definitely something to bookmark right that there. That is something to bookmark. Because as we've talked, it, it does seem very much apparent that those who have uh, great faith in their heart when they face critical issues, I mean, we've been together on several instances of people who've faced critical incidents and moments in law enforcement. Him, of course, many doing what he does in his role, but 
and of course you many in the many years that you've been doing this it does seem that those who have strong faith really do fare well oh yeah and do much better than those who have spent their life or career or their thoughts are pretty much within themselves i noticed you didn't say that those with faith didn't go through as many trials and tribulations no because we all do. That's right. Yeah. And the so, sun rises and falls on the just and the unjust. Rain falls. It rains and it mm-hmm. on the just and the unjust. So we're all living and walking through this life. It's the same life. It's the same planet. We don't get a different same planet. challenges. That's right. <laughs> Be nice to have a different planet. Some people may think they're on a different planet, but they need medication. <laughs> we're, we're on the same planet. But if I uh, hear this man who's... Uh, had some life experiences here. Yeah. What we're hearing is that the differentiator yeah. is faith and specifically a father with faith as well. Oh, Absolutely. Plays a big role. Yeah. And that should be a message to all of us. And, and really, I think the names that he can rattle off so easily of leaders in his life, they're, they are like fathers in the aspects of what they come to impart to you. We call them mentors sometimes, we may call them coaches, we may, but really they are like fathers in the faith. And that's really the point that I think needs to not be glossed over, is even if you are a child that has divorced parents or you never even knew your dad, right? Yeah. There are still those fathers of the faith, the mentors, the um, people that take you under the wing or maybe another family member. Or grandma. That's who right. Kicks you through the goalposts of life. The, the landmarks, the benchmarks, <laughs> right? right? She, Don't she, move them. That's uh, right. But but absolutely, and I just think that's a strong, powerful message yeah. right there. And I always love the fact I listen, and men like um, uh, Bill, they do not use that as an excuse, right? No, no. Uh, you, I, I've never heard you use it. Well, I could have done better if I. Well, I could have. And you've done wonderful things with your life and career and what you love to do and your your call, your duty. Um, I think that's important you made that point too because I've met men that did not have that that also were great men of yeah. faith, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the thing you yeah. said earlier, you're talking about, the, I guess, the youth of today, this latest generation and the attempts to move the landmarks, to move the benchmarks. I think one of the things that I observe, and, and Bill, I'd be interested in your perspective on this too. I'm not so sure that it's the youth or the generation that's trying to move the landmarks. I think there's prior generations that are moving oh. the landmarks and the benchmarks on the youth Thank of you. today. Yes, I was going to say Creating that confusion yeah. that they don't know what to place a value that's in. That's right. And you spoke to it earlier. I think you see a lot of youth now with a spirit of advan- adventure. Very bright. Versus a spirit of service because that's been really poured into them by the media, by the news, by family members or lack thereof. By education systems in our nation today. But when they get the opportunity for service, you look at these latest generations that have fought multi-year wars now, who the service, and we see it in law enforcement. Oh, yeah. You can think that the latest generation is just a lost cause, and then you see the unbelievable performance that we see from a one two-year veteran officer uh we've just seen recently with an officer shot in the throat and you look at these these young men and women and you say where 
where did we get them from? Yeah. Right. So the, I think to your point, the depth is there. It's who's pouring into them. Yeah. Who's what calling are them they out? hearing? Who is calling them forward? They want to be led. They want to be that's called. Right. They want to be um, that's, mentored. That's that's the point. Is that if you look in these these the most insidious wars that our generations or any generation has been asked to fight have been in the last twenty years, in my opinion. And mm. that generation has so outperformed my generation. If you haven't seen that, so that should tell us something. Because, but what's the common denominator here? The ones I've talked with, they are so well prepared and trained by comparison to my generation, and, and we were okay for our generation. But that's the key because I've read books, and you probably have too, about taking inner-city kids out of Detroit and other major cities, and they become these young Marines, as an example, mm-hmm. and, or other services too. But I remember specifically reading about it, and. It comes back to training and leadership. Yep, training. And see, that's that's. I was so fortunate because of the Marine Corps. But then I, the people that I mentioned is that. See, I needed that structure, yeah. and I didn't have it. I didn't have those boundaries that you get when you have strong leadership in your family. I had to figure it out on my own, pretty much. But did it eventually, <laughs> slow as it took. But that was that's the key. And so I look back to you and I reflect back on Alaska, and the Marine Corps with such favor because I realized that those men, just as you said. They became a surrogate father for me. Yeah. You know, and told me this is what they look like. And then some of them weren't that much older than me. Right. Right. And I, I so I, I want to encourage uh, those of you who are <clears throat> who are still on the department and um, and you're a sergeant or a lieutenant, you have the the opportunity to lead, touch the lives of these younger generations and officers that are coming on. Don't lose hope and don't look at them or talk down to them or talk bad about them. You rise to the occasion and lead them into the same things that our previous generations led us into in becoming great leaders, and I guarantee you they'll respond. They have. I, 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 they they absolutely will respond. Would you agree? Well, no doubt. I I just think what Bill just shared is extremely powerful. To have a man of his experience and character saying, "This latest generation over the last twenty years has far outperformed." Uh, previous that's, generation. That's a mouthful. I mean, that's I and but I hear that time and time again yep. from folks yep. who have been been around for a minute and ha- can see it and are still actively engaged in the law enforcement profession, military service in general, leadership. That's what they tell us to a person: is don't overlook, don't write off this latest generation. Mm-hmm. They have a sense of service and a heart and compassion that we haven't seen before. But we got to draw that out. Gotta we got to draw it out. We got to yeah. channel that and focus that. And I think that's what you see a lot when you see uh, folks of this latest generation that do things that just boggle your mind uh, or take positions. You see many uh, trying to adopt or find an adoption into any group they can find. And if there isn't something there that's of positive, a positive nature, you see what we've seen over the last couple of years with. Um, riotous behavior, attacks, right. let alone let's talk about crime and violence, uh, that the likes of which we've never seen. But again, I think that goes back to this biblical perspective of there's good and there's evil, and which are you, which are you connected to, which are you, That's right. um, uh, living by. And so, wow, that's uh, powerful stuff. 
Thank you for all your service. Yeah, very much. much. Kind. And your service that you continue to provide. You know, you were talking earlier about uh, Mike Murphy and mm-hmm. that you never got to meet him. That, that just, that blew, if there's one thing that blew us out today, that would be the thing when he said, you know, I never got to meet him. I'm like, get out of here. You're talking about him like you guys were sitting there. I thought they were at some point. He was like your partner or something. I mean, or a the, FTO or something. And remember, the, remember Campbell's book was called The Power of Myth. Be yeah. careful how you interpret that myth because this was reality. Yeah. But the storytelling. There you go. That's it's what I was going to say. The power of story and the influence that he had on your life, not just way back then in 19, mm-hmm. late 1960s, but all the way to here today that still has on yeah. your life. Yeah, I mean, you can see the emotion in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the thing that I just wanted to say is I'm so glad that I did get to meet my mentor. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Can I tell you one more story about yeah. Murphy? I'm in a back alley. This is two years <laughs> afterwards. Chasing a little burglar down an alley. And he's habitual. I've been laying for him. And I got a corporal Lawrence who loves catching burglars. Got an 18-hour night in Anchorage. So it's a great place for Jesus. burglars. He's throwing money over his shoulders, and he's yelling this as we go down the hallway or down the alleyway, nonviolent felony, because he's afraid I'm gonna shoot him. <laughs> Probably knew it was my procedures better than I did. But anyway, I caught up with him, I got him pinned, and I'm thinking, yes, because I made this great arrest. He looks up at me and calls me actually by name and spit in my face. See? Now, just human nature, what, what do you think the average human being, myself included, wanted to do to him? And you know what flashed in my mind? It wasn't constitutional law, hmm. it was my uncle. Wow. And Murphy, who said, if you do this job properly, with Come restraint, man. you know, and a Murphy, because I got to thinking, no more who here, after talking about those men, who would want to disappoint a Murphy, you see? Who would want to disappoint? There, yeah. So it's not knowledge of law. I can kick that out of your ears, but you've got to believe in the nobility and the honor right. and the service. You know, when I, when I walk out of my office, every time I go to go to the sanctuary to preach, Every time I go to leave to go do things in life, ministry, or just normal life, my fathers in the faith are in a row, eye level, face to face. They're my benchmarks right across the hallway. The minute I open my door, I have to look in all of their eyes. And I know that those are the men I never want to dishonor or disappoint. That's powerful. And it, and it sets, I don't care what day it is, I don't care how I'm feeling, if I'm having a bad day, or if I, when I look at those faces and I look down that line, those are the men I never want to disappoint. And it does change you and have an effect on your attitude as you walk to go do other things in life. It's powerful. Hey, tell us a minute about this guy named Earl. I hear there's a guy named <laughs> Earl uh, that... Uh, that you have a great story about. I'd Earl, like to know about Earl. Earl Sourman. And uh, Earl Sourman works in a department out in the Pennsylvania area. I met him probably 15, 20 years ago in a class, and he was kind of at that stage of his life where he was losing passion for the work. And uh, I, I always look in the audience to see where the lights are turned on, you know, and his lights are turned on. So we got to talking over a break, and like I found out he taught, he teaches. So I said, well, come on over here. and. I just threw PowerPoint on him and everything I said. He goes, let me know. And so we kind of became good friends. Uh, I do a conference at my home in the fall, and usually in October we invite in 30 or 40 good peer friends. The whole idea there is a network and mentor. And uh, I actually put him together with one of the most, one of the strongest faithful men that I know, 
because I knew Earl was a man who was a believer, but I also know that he was what I would call a casual believer. Uh, I want to be careful of the word because I had it applied to me, weak brother one time. I was a believer, but I was a weak brother. And uh, so he was with him for a couple days, and it made Earl kind of refocus his life a little bit, you know, at least to talk, and we could talk comfortably about those things. Well, Earl finally got to the point of retirement. He's a wonderful man with a wonderful family. He has uh, sons, uh, one in the, in the work as well, too. But then uh, just a year and a half, maybe two years ago, he found out he had uh, non-alcoholic um, liver disease. Oh, wow. And um, he never told told a soul eventually, but I'll, I'll make this somewhat long story because it was about an 18-month period of time for him. But he was literally waiting for um, a liver. And... Um, and probably within his last 30 days of his life. But I have never seen a man transition so humbly as that walk. Mm. And talking with him and our ability now to talk about faith. And and uh, and he finally, this last year, because I'll tell you, I had a lot of prayerful men, you among them, yes. asking to pray for him because we can't lose him at this stage of his life. Yeah, Too much to give back yet. So, yeah. Wow. So... Uh, <laughs> He, uh, he got that liver, and he's well under recovery now, sends me pictures from time to time. But Come boy, on. every time that we talk, <laughs> uh, I ask him, I said, you, you do realize that now that your God's not done with you, and he obviously has a purpose for you and a story right. for you to tell, and with passion. And I can see, I can just see this, uh, this emerging story, because he'll be a man that will step into a classroom, and whether he professes this or not, I have one friend who I always love because he opens his sessions with, uh, I'm an unapologetic Christian. And mm-hmm. he, he doesn't impose that on you, but he wants you to know I'm going to speak from that context. That's good. And I think, that, I think our audiences need to hear that. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's the way I can see him, not only conducting his life, but yeah, also awesome. how he's going to conduct a pulpit as well, too, so to speak. And that's what we're doing here. We're unapologetically uh, sharing uh, policing from a biblical perspective. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Thankful uh, for it. <laughs> we love Jesus and love cops. Can't help ourselves. And if you had the opportunity to just share with the audience or somebody who stumbles upon this podcast, what's your thoughts about the value of what we're doing here with this biblical perspective and not just policing but life in general? You know, I had, a, I had an officer come up to me in Missouri one time, and he says, how come you don't use Christ as your role model? And I purposely have not done that. And I said, you know, I, I tell you why. You're right. He's obviously a great role model. But if I did that, I said, I know there would be some people in that audience that I would lose. But if you listen to us over three to five days and you are faith-based, I will reinforce your faith. Because all the great studies of leadership, uh, anyway, any, they all come back to the same place. Yes, they might right. use a term servant leadership or Collins, it might be level five leadership or you drink the term that you want to use. That's right. But there's truth and the truth is there and Christ That's was right. the truth. So I told him that. Well, what, what I, I guess I would say is that we need this now. I've gotten to this chapter in my life and say, no, it's time for us in an unapologetic way to talk about our faith because there's never been a time in this nation's history, in my opinion, that we've needed it more than now. There is an element out there, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, there's an element out there that wants to divide this country on every facet, whether it's gender, or whether it's economics, or whatever it might be. And we have to recognize that. 
and then I think we have to reinforce it because when I was like that conference I have, I never, I didn't pick people to come to that conference because of their faith. I picked them because of their work. Right. But guess what we found out? Hmm. The vast majority of those people that come there. Great faith. Yeah, you know, I had a breakfast meeting with a man this morning that I've known for 20 years, and we never talked about faith. And I'm watching, I watch him over that career. But you look at how he practices and has practices, and you realize, well, because I ask him, where are you in your faith walk? And so we talked about that. He's been, a, and you can see it in his work. It's time that we start people realizing not to impose this on you, but you recognize if you see something you like here, there's a reason for that. That's it's right. not just great happenstance. Point. It's providence. Thank and I, my life is a great example of that, I think, in the of, of the failures and the failures. What I've learned about my God late in life, hmm. that's how forgiving he is. He is a forgiving God. Amen. And boy, don't we all need it. That's right. Yeah. Well, listen, Bill, you are without a doubt our Michael Murphy. And we're grateful we that are. we got to meet our mentor. You're a landmark and a benchmark for our profession. Uh, allow me on behalf of our profession to tell you that. Um, but also many of us like myself personally in life. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your service and your sacrifice. But uh, just as you were just saying, I don't think your God's done with you yet either. So no. keep keep standing in the middle of his truth. Uh, we appreciate your support and encouragement for what we're doing here, but demonstrating that by being on here. And I hope that your words today, well, I know your words today oh. have touched the hearts of people that are watching this. Yeah. So officers, military veterans, first responders, and their families. So thank you very much for that. Now, gentlemen, may I ask, is there time to grab some barbecue somewhere? <laughs> I think Jesus would want us to do it. He might, he might, might turn us more towards the chicken and the beef. But, but uh, no, yeah. we're we're just very thankful for you, and we appreciate you taking the time to uh, stop in here and share with all of us. I mean, just as you can tell, audience, what a what just what a great. Uh, I would call him one of our heroes. Now he would probably resist us using that word with him but to me he's one of our great heroes and uh, we're just very thankful for you and appreciate you i treasure every time i'm around you i i i treasure i hold fond wonderful uh, memories in my heart of our trip together i would i would not have trade i i you can't put a price on that and uh, just very grateful for you. Thank you so much for being with us Thank today. Thank you, gentlemen, for, uh, for the invitation. It's yeah. actually a privilege. And as I always say, we love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> That's right. That's nah, right. Nah, nah, nah. Well, right. again, here, somebody's uh, stumbled upon this, they're watching this, or they're a faithful viewer, part of the community, the R&R community. Uh, this is why we're doing what we're doing. That's right. And it's because of men and women like uh, Bill Westfall that – make that possible and uh, have uh, really poured into us so we can help let that overflow into into other realms like this. So yeah. That's right, and we'll stay at it. So as, like, as subscribe, share. Hit the bell, hit and as you bell. would say, it's good stuff. good stuff. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> God bless you all. We'll see you real soon. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Rick and I trust that you heard something that will help your life, and if you believe that it would help others, please make sure and share. Like and subscribe and hit that bell 
so that you can be notified when the next podcast is available. God bless you, and we'll see you soon.